Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Tell me about the weather down there right now, brother. Well, we had a solid day of rain yesterday, which yeah. we don't get very much. Oh, really? About, uh, yeah, about almost almost an inch of rain at my house in the last 24 hours. Wow. So broken clouds today, and we're supposed to have some uh, on and off showers over the weekend, which for us uh, Phoenixites, the uh, first day of rain is wonderful. We walk around like, uh, uh, you know, uh, domestic turkeys with our mouths open, gaping open, <laughs> staring at the sky going, isn't this wonderful? Yeah. Uh, by the second day, we're a little depressed, and by the third day, we're suicidal. <laughs> Byron Short is my guest. He's a broker in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Byron, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. I was first introduced to you through this, uh, I think I saw it on LinkedIn, where you had an interview, and, and uh, what grabbed my attention was something like 12% commission, so I was, I was all over that. They, they were like, you think 5 or 6% commission's bad? How about 12 <laughs> So good that job was, on the on the, a, the headline writing. That was a little bit of a that was a little bit of a clickbait headline, yeah, I think, uh, wasn't it? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> so uh, we had a little conversation. Uh, I, it was really informative for me there uh, a couple of weeks ago, as far as i buyers go. You know what the market's like down there. What the influence of Canadians coming down. I really loved when you said. Uh, you know, uh, some of the Canadians, you know, you got a million dollar property, they're tossing in offers of 750, 800 and thinking, well, it's a good place to start. That's not how you work down there. And I was really uh, surprised to hear that your listing to sale ratio is 90, 90 plus, almost 95% down there. So tell us a little bit about you, how long you've been doing stuff, what your market is, and how the market is down there in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, it's uh, market down here is good. I've been uh, I, I consider myself new in real estate for another about a month and a half. A month and a half, I'll be ten years in the business, and new. I think I, it's harder for me to pretend to be new at that point. Okay, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I've been running my own brokerage for seven years, and um, the market here this fall we took a little step back, which is our normal market anyway. Okay, um, a little slow spot in the fall to kind of recompact the pricing and make sure everybody's happy. And then on January 1, the bell rings and it's off like a shot again And as all the snowbirds come into town. Um, we have three seasons here in Phoenix as far as real estate goes, three real estate seasons. We have the snowbird season January through April. Okay. We have the local season, just like most parts of the country do, which is, I would say, May through August. Okay. And then, and then we have the lost season, the lost season, September through December, when we kind of are looking at the market going to do something, it usually stays flat. Sometimes it declines a little in the fall. And it's kind of that compression time to make sure that all the gains we had in the summer and in the spring are really going to hold up. Right. Now, what's your average? What are you selling down there? Mostly residential or are you even commercial as well? Uh, mostly residential, 95% or so out of my office, probably 96 or 97% residential. Yeah. Okay. And uh, what do you, I, we talked about this a little bit more, but, uh, you know, my passion up here especially is, you know, the downward pressure on commission rates. What's your, uh, well, you can't say the mo well. I guess you can say the most common rate. You can't say the market rate, but because I guess that's anti-competitive. Sure. I don't know. So you have to watch your language yeah, when yeah. you're talking about commissions. And obviously, we're not making deals in groups where we're not going to accept, you know, or exclude people. Or I mean, we got discount commissions all over the place, owner-assisted uh, commissions. So I don't think that should be a worry. It was here in Canada for some time. I think that's gone now. So what are you what are you looking at for an average rate of commission down there for set, uh, listings? 
you know, I, I think that everybody wants to think that 6% is still uh, the most common listing rate. And I think probably if we look at uh, the settlement statements that are coming in where for the first time we get to see both sides. Oh, really? Um, yeah, on a settlement statement, we will see the uh, seller's commission as well as the buyer's commission. Okay. Um, and so on those on the settlement statements, we're seeing 6% is still probably the most common. Okay. Um, but we're seeing a lot of the times that the listing agent is discounting his side. Okay. Uh, I, it's not uncommon to see the listing agent wind up taking two and a half or two and still pay the buy side 3%. Um, I think agents here have understood that you're putting your seller at a disadvantage if you offer only 2% or 2.5% to the buyer broker. Yeah, and and in fact, as that downward pressure continues and we do begin to see some more two and a halfs and twos out there, I, I instruct my staff on the proper way within the code of ethics to get that commission negotiated before you show the home. And it has to be done before you show the home. Mm-hmm. And it should be done option signed by your buyer. If you have a buyer broker agreement signed that says that they're going to pay you 3% for, for your work, then it's a pretty simple thing before you show the home to call the listing agent and say, you know, I think my folks are really going to like your house. I'd really like to include it, but they've signed a buyer broker agreement with me. And if they buy your house, they're going to be half a percent short or one percent short, and that means they're going to have to write an additional check to me. So mm-hmm. before I decide whether we want to show your house or not, I thought I'd give you a chance to see if you'd like to make your house more competitive. Right now, what seems to it's common up, maybe not common, but there's some agents up here in my market that are actually taking five or six percent and offering two to the selling broker, saying, "Hey, we're doing all the work as the listing agent." I don't know how that's all the work and discounting the selling broker commission. I'm not sure that they're having a conversation with their sellers about that. Is this something that you find is common in your area? And is that something that you would get on board with if, you know, you had an agent in your office that said, yeah, I'm doing all the work. I'm doing all the marketing. I'm going to I'm going to split it. So the listing end gets more of the commission than the selling end. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Two things have happened that relate to this directly. The first one is our Arizona Association of Realtors ER form, our exclusive right to sell form, our listing form, now says, as of about a year ago, it shows what are you offering to the to the selling agent. And so the, 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 the seller agrees up front that, yeah, we're gonna pay 6%, let's say, and only 2.5% goes to the buyer's agent, and I'm keeping 3.5%. The seller would see that up front and agrees to it in writing. So, and I'm going to tell you, the seller's probably not going to agree to that in writing. Well, the I'm seller just, is, the I'm sellers just, are pretty savvy about that. Yeah, I'm just more concerned with somebody that's, you know, not uh, savvy and not doesn't have an idea what the selling broker split is and just... You know, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but if it is happening, it's something that would certainly would concern me as far as discounting the selling broker or the buyer broker commission without having a conversation with the seller of how it could, you know, financially negatively impact them, their bottom line. Yeah, we will certainly never be able to uh, to know for sure all the things that are said outside of the contract, but distilling the writing to where the at least that that uh, that seller has to sign off on what it says in the contract. We all we can do the best we can do sometimes. Byron the fact that the that the practitioner has described it to them that what what are the benefits of having this three percent paid out versus two percent paid out to the other side right okay so this isn't uh, something it, that you're finding is an issue in your market very much 
Not that much, but uh, because most of the time it's done the other way. Most of our agents understand we're going to pay three. Certainly my agents understand this. We're going to pay three to the other side so that we're as competitive as we can be in the market. And if there has to be a discount, it'll come from my side. But I mentioned there were two things. The second of those things is that my broker policy manual has, has a section in it about this is we don't allow our agents to list the property where they pay the other agent less. Right. Approval first. So in other words, if you want to discount, if you want to if you want to take a 5% listing or a 4% listing, if you want to make it even 2 and 2 or 2 and a half and 2 and a half, that's okay, they can do that, but you're not allowed to make it 3% to the lister and 2% to the buyer. That's against our policy manual. Oh, okay. I got and the you. reason is because ultimately that decision was made. I, I don't think that the listing agent should be negotiating the buyer's agent's commission. So mm. if he, it, sometimes we kind of have to do it in order to get the listing to go at all. We have that person who will only do it on 4%. So then maybe you need to make two and two. But in my office, it's more common to see it the other way, that we're going to take the best care we can of that seller and to do that. We're going to offer that property out at 3%. If we need to take our side at only 1% to do that, there must be some reason we're doing it. Right. You know, because no is an answer, too. No is a complete sentence. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> will you discount? No, I won't. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, that's a perfectly viable answer. And then you need to explain why other people might discount and what they're giving up to do that. Right. So how common would it be for someone to have a maybe a you know a home that's been on the market a long time and instead of doing a price reduction they do a commission increase to something like 4%. So it's more than the whole market out there. Do you see that at all? Rarely. You see it occasionally and you see it in the higher uh, luxury markets. Oh really? Um, you know half million a million dollar markets you'll see that little ploy. Really? It generally doesn't work and I'll tell you the other thing too is that luxury agents are more apt to tell their buyer, hey, they're trying to pay 4%. If we happen to land this deal, I'll rebate you 1%. Oh, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because, oh, I mean, I use 4% to selling brokers on almost everything I list up here, but I think our market might be a little bit different. And I want to talk about this uh, as we go here. Uh, the idea that at least in Canada, well, we have a contract for a price and a commission. So if I bring you that price, you got to pay that commission. There's no doubt about it. There's taxes on it. There's a holdover clause. You know, he equals she, singular equals uh, multiple, um, that kind of stuff. So uh, the, the contracts are all the same. Uh, but, you know, the the vendor in Canada or the seller, you know, very often when it comes down to it, will say, well, uh, you know, I'll take X, which is much different than, you know, the listing price of Y. If you guys take W, so what do you think? And, you know, I've coached my agents like, or, or my sellers and, and the agents I talk to that, listen, we're going to put 4% on the selling broker. If you get something close to full price, you're going to have to pay more than anyone's paying in the market. It'll be worth it to you because, you know, sometimes it's way above what they expect to get as far as a net goes. Uh, and down the road, if you drop significantly, if you if you take ten or $20,000 less, then that's the time you have leverage before you take less is to say to the agents, well, I, I'll take less, but I, I, want, I don't want to pay the bonus. But that's not how the wor it works down in the States, I guess. Well, in fact, that's against the code of ethics that wow. uh, we can't actually, once, we, once we've made the agreement, once it's in MLS and there's the, the, the offer to, to compensate, and then somebody has shown your property and then you're working an offer, that listing agent can't, it would be a violation of the code of ethics to say, hey, how about you discount your commission? That's yep. not the way it's supposed to happen at all. Now, the buyer broker could say, I know you're advertising three on this or you're advertising four on this. 
why don't you let me, you know, I'll send you a private letter saying that I'll accept two and a half instead if you'll accept my client's offer. That's perfectly okay because the the buyer broker can can go ahead and cut his commission or offer offer to cut his commission, but the listing agent cannot. Oh, you start I making that change in commission part of the offer, and you've got a violation of the code of ethics. Oh, okay, maybe I misunderstood you when we spoke a couple of weeks ago because I was under the impression. I mean, so if you're at the negotiation table and back in the old days, and I still go on every presentation as a buyer's agent uh, that I can, even though, you know, mostly uh, it's done by email and, and virtually, I, yeah, obviously you have a presentation to the, to the seller, but I try to be there at, at when possible. So if you're sitting with the buyer's agent and the listing agent and the seller and the seller says, Hey, I'll accept this offer. If you guys work for this, that's okay. Right. The seller can say it because oh. the seller is not a member of our code of ethics. Got it. But but the seller can't. Uh, that's something that the buyer, uh, the seller's agent needs to clarify before it goes to, to writing, because we we still can't really make that offer. And the contract says that the contract doesn't say we will change this. So we have a situation, of course, fiduciary duty says we're going to follow their lawful instruction. It's not a lawful instruction if it requires us to change uh, the contract as it's written. So the, the, the selling agent has the right to say, no, I won't do that because we already have a contract. And if I do that, then I'm violating the code of ethics that I'm bound by. Got it. So that's where, the, that's where the rubber meets the road. We really do want to follow, you know, the code of ethics has evolved over, what, 100 years now. Um, it is something that's pretty good. And sometimes it seems pretty arcane to people, even to agents, um, when we see the code of ethics telling people that you can't negotiate commissions this certain way. They can still be negotiated in other ways. Right, I got you. Uh, we, we, yeah, we have agents in Arizona that think that it's illegal to negotiate the commission on the contract. It's not illegal. <laughs> it's just that it's really dangerous and it runs up hard against the code of ethics. You have to be sure that you've done this the right way. Right. Um, if ever you do a commercial transaction in Arizona and probably in most of the country, um, the commissions are part of that negotiation right up front. Right. They, they don't have a code of ethics that calls that out, that you can't do it that way. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of, uh, through the uh, National Association of Realtors and through 100 years of history of morphing this thing around, we've reached a uh, homeostatic state where commissions work this way and really work best when we stick to that. Hmm. So now we have some of these new business models coming in that have these new ways of doing commissions and it flies in the face of the code of ethics, except it doesn't quite because they do it correctly. But what it really does is that we wind up with 1% or flat rate commissions. Um, there are some of the companies now, Purple Bricks is one, where you can pay up front, pay a fee up front, mm -hmm. and not have to pay any commission on the back. But guess what? If it doesn't sell, you've already paid your fee. And are you finding the same as oh, we've got Purple Bricks up here now as well? They just took over... Uh... Uh, Comfrey, I think it was before, and they had deep pockets, and I'm sure Purple Bricks is backed up uh, well there. Are you finding the same as us up here? Is 85% of these so-called private listings that now have uh, uh, MLS exposure are sold by agents anyway? I mean, 85% of the buyers are coming from agents that represent buyers and are expecting to get paid. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, when you look at, uh, I think the statistics for for sell by owners are, are kind of the same as that, that uh, lots of people can try FISBO, but all of those FISBO attempts almost always wind up getting listed with a realtor before they get sold. So the market is still dominated by MLSs, 
and by uh, by members of the realtor associations. So your stats would be the same as about ours then, because I mean, maybe well, we just came out of one of the hottest markets in North America, uh, especially in Niagara here. And uh, uh, we back before that hot market started, uh, 85% as a general rule, 85% of FISBOs failed and ended up listing, which means they spent money they didn't need to up front because they didn't get a sale out of it. And then out of the sales that were successful, if you want to call it that way, uh, privately, 85% of those sales were done by agents. Is that a, is similar to what you experienced down in the States? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right on it. Now, I haven't seen that stat lately. I don't recall it. I right. don't have it right at my fingertips, but it's always been just like what you said. Those numbers are consistent year to year. Right. And, and currently, you know, with all of the hoopla about there's all these people that want to um, – Oh, gosh, what's their favorite word? They're going to uh, uh, not disturb the market. They're going to uh, – the word they use all the time cracks me up. They're, they're going, they think that we're a market that needs disruption. There we go. There's the word. They're going to disrupt our market because right. our market needs disruption. And their evidence of that is that, oh, my gosh, you know, you pay a real estate agent on a $6,000 or a, a uh, $6,000 commission on a uh, $200,000 house, 6000 to each side. That's a lot of money. Clearly, this, this market needs disruption. <laughs> but what they haven't figured out yet is that the vast majority of what we do is pro bono. So it, I, I tell my agents and I tell my clients, too, that imagine that we're Starbucks. And the way we're going to work is somebody comes up the, star, the uh, drive through and we say, your coffee's free. Next person, we say, your coffee's free. Next person, your coffee's free. Somewhere down the line is this guy number nine or ten, and we'd go, your coffee is $75. <laughs> the fact is we serve that coffee, and we need to make 75 bucks on those 10 cups of coffee or whatever it is these days. I think Starbucks might be seven fifty a cup. <laughs> so we need to make that $75 on, on all of that coffee. Right. But in our world, most of what we do, most of the clients we work with don't, in fact, finish and go all the way through a sale. So a lot of the work we do, the majority of the work we do, is pro bono, whether we wanted it to be or not. Mm, interesting. And what are your end, your average, uh, I mean, you're a broker down there as well. Sorry, what's the name of your brokerage again, Byron? It's Success Property Brokers. Right. And, and you're the broker there, the principal broker. So you see all the trades that come through. And I think you're, pro based on our conversation a couple of weeks ago, I think you're pretty much up on the stats. So what uh what's your average end worth percentage wise down there i would say when i'm doing my planning for the year i use 2.75 percent wow and that turns out to be pretty close wow. um cool. yeah we're in that ballpark uh this year and over the last year or so it, we are getting down to where we may start looking at 2.6 or so as an average so we do see downward pressure but it's not moving very quickly uh, mm -hmm. If we check our MLS right now for the advertised rates, which are only for the buy side, of course, I think we'll find that 3% covers something in the 80th percentile. I'm sure we're in the 80s. We could oh, be approaching 90% okay. that are covered by 3% commissions. All right. And so when you when we talk about ends, that's just for, you know, if the a listing side or a selling side, not a total commission as far as a listing goes then. Correct. Yeah, correct. Just awesome. the one side. Awesome. The listing sides right now, I would say, are probably running lower than the, the buyer sides uh, in right. our market. We do see, uh, when I look at the settlement statements coming through, um, again, something like 80% are 3 percenters on the buy side. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the 3 percenters on the sell side are around 50%. Okay, so... With the 
there's a lot of them being 2% after that. So you would subscribe to the theory that it does it's not going to hurt your seller if I give you a discount on my end, the listing end, if you're a friend or a repeat client or you know, or you just want to do a favor for someone or it comes down to, you know, buying a listing or just getting it uh, from, you know, a loyalty standpoint. So uh, that doesn't put your seller at a disadvantage, but as soon as you discount the selling broker, the buyer broker, it could, and most often probably does. Yeah, and, and this is an interesting thing, Jim, because um, if we look at the Code of Ethics and we look at fiduciary duty, the, the, the first thing that you think is that that buyer broker should not care or even notice what they're paying. That if they he should treat it equally, if this is a perfect house for them that only pays 2%, that's still better than the almost perfect house that pays 3%. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there is this other factor, and this other factor comes into the fact that the agent needs to make a living. If the agent is smart, he's using a buyer-broker agreement to secure his, his uh, commission rate. Uh, he uses that buyer-broker agreement, and he has the buyer sign off that they will pay him a 3% commission or whatever's in MLS if it happens to be higher, which in our case is very rare. Oh. So the 3% commission is what's been committed to. And then, as I mentioned earlier, then you can use that properly. There is a way to use it correctly. Call the listing agent and say, would you be willing to make your house more competitive by making it pay 3% so that my buyer doesn't have to come out of pocket for commissions if he chooses your house. And that, that line of reasoning seems to work pretty well especially if it's a situation where there really was a 6% total commission and the listing agent was thinking he was going to keep four and pay out two. And there are some of those agents trying to do that. So you'll be able to move that very quickly. Uh, also, if you have a good reputation in your market, if people know you and you call the other agent and say, hey, listen, I'm setting up a showing day, but I've got my, my buyer on a buyer broker agreement. Your house is going to cost my, my client out of pocket money to make up the commission. Would you like to fix that? We've seen many cases where with that strong reputation, they know that you're probably bringing a good buyer. If that house has been on the market a little bit, they're very happy to make sure they get the house sold. Got it. And uh, so, well, that's a very interesting take. I appreciate that. So what's, what is your duty if uh, by chance you've got a two and a half or 3%, let's say a 3% buyer broker contract, and you end up getting paid more from the vendor, then what happens to the excess? Do you have to declare that? Or is it automatically a kickback to the buyer? Or how does that work? No, the uh, the buyer broker agreement, and this is the Arizona Association of Realtors buyer broker agreement. I don't know that it's the same in all states. But in our state, the way Arizona has written it is it says it's blank percent or whatever is shown in MLS, whichever is higher. Oh, I got you. So that's not an issue. So, so. Yeah, so you do swallow up the extra if they're paying a little 1% bonus or if you have a relationship with that builder. In, in many cases, if you've done multiple homes with a home builder, they'll pay 4% to you. Okay. Um, so those types of things, yes, you're free to collect those. Um, but it does give you the power to put a hard stop on the, on the lower payment. And remember, this is not against your fiduciary duty because what you've done up front before you entered into fiduciary duty, before you entered into this relationship with that buyer, you signed a buyer broker agreement saying, I'm going to represent you and these are the rules. Is that okay with you? And they said, yes. And those rules said, I work for 3%. Mm -hmm. So they right. agreed to that. So you're not breaching fiduciary duty at all to call out that listing that's at two and a half percent and say, hey folks, how about, you know, would you like to make your home as competitive as the other homes on our showing list? Got it. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, I appreciate your time, Byron. and. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the iBuyer because I 
virtually know nothing about it. It was kind of well explained in the article where I was introduced to you. Uh, I'm not sure that it's all that common in Canada, but as usual, it comes from the States first. So give us a little uh, 101 or uh, an iBuyer for dummies. Okay, sure. So the iBuyers uh, hit the scene really a couple years ago in, in to, with the term iBuyer. Prior to that, we can go back 100 years ago, I think, r- roughly 100 years ago, we had the uh, guys from the We Buy Ugly Houses franchise, and those guys were teaching you how to go out, buy houses from distressed distressed owners, uh, buy them, flip them, sell them for, for profit. The iBuyers are essentially the new version of that. The first iBuyer here in our market that really got traction was Open Door. It's actually a local company. Uh, they so far have about $2 billion worth of funding to use for buying homes, in addition to around a half a billion dollars of infrastructure investment in their business. So they're working with a lot of outside money invested. So these are not to be taken lightly. They do know what they're doing. What an iBuyer does, if I can put it this way, they bring everything you love about the used car business <laughs> to real estate. <laughs> so Cheeky. <laughs> just, <laughs> just like in the used car business, um, they are willing to take in your trade. They will glad you pay, gladly pay you less than what it's worth so that then they can fix it up and sell it for more than what it's worth. That's essentially their market. So what this means, and now we do that every day. When you go when you go to buy a new car or a used car, you bring your old trade in there. You could sell it yourself, and you know you could sell it for more, but you sell it to the dealer as part of the trade because it's so convenient, because it's easy. And in the case of an automobile, what are you giving up? A thousand bucks, maybe two, tops, probably most of the time less. So it's pretty easy and convenient to do that at your new car dealership when you go buy your next new car. But with homes, it's a little different kind of picture because what we'll see is we might have a home that's worth 300,000 on the market. And the advertising that Open Door puts out there says, hey, we'll pay you a fair price for your home. And there's no commissions because commissions are evil. So you never wanna pay commissions. We don't have any of those. And that's what their ads say all the time. And people love that. They go, wow, no real estate commissions? That's fantastic and I'm going to get a fair price. So then they have an algorithm, and they'll actually give you a bid right on the internet. This is just like a, just like a Zestimate, just like a Zillow Zestimate. Okay. They'll give you an estimate right on the internet, and they'll get it back to you within a very short amount of time. You sign up on the internet, I think you have the estimate back in 12 hours. Um, so it's very quick. Let's say that estimate comes in at 290. Your realtor thought the house was worth 300. They give you 290, and there are no commissions. That sounds great, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, especially because you get paid in 48 hours too, don't you? It, yeah, yeah. You can also you can close very quickly. They'll close as fast as the HOA can prepare the documents uh, or, or the title company. So, so they'll close quickly. They're very happy to do this. They'll also let you stay in the house for up to 30 days after close. They'll pay for your move. Everything they're doing is aimed at convenience. Okay? Mm-hmm. Think about somebody who has a house that has maybe young children in the home. And so the house is really never clean. You know, last time, you know, when you have young children, you know, your next clean house will be when they turn 18 and leave, <laughs> right? So, so that person, the inconvenience of having to show the house and try to keep it clean really weighs on that person. So Open Door shows up and says, hey, instead of 300, we'll give you 290. No pesky commissions, no showings. We'll close whenever you want. We'll let you stay in it for another week. Somebody who needs to sell this house in order to buy the new house, that's perfect. 
Right. Right. Mm -hmm. They close. They don't close until they've selected the new house they're going to move to. They stay in this house an extra five days, so they're not in a rush to move out. They don't have to spend the night in the, in the moving van between houses when they're waiting to close the next day on the new house. Right. So it's a really a convenience play, and it makes sense to offer that. But now let's break it down a little bit. What does it really cost the customer? So I mentioned that there are no commissions because in the words of uh, Open Door and, and many others, commissions are evil. Why would you want to pay those, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, they don't have commissions. What they have is a remarketing fee. And a remarketing fee starts at about, guess what number, 6%, and -hmm. it goes up from there up to as high as 12%, which was the uh, clickbait headline you you clicked on. Not my headline, by the way, somebody else's who was talking about me, but uh, not something I said, but they they used it as clickbait headline. Um, So they offer a 6 to 12% remarketing fee, not to be confused with commissions. A remarketing fee is what it costs to pay commissions next time when they go to sell the house. You see how that's entirely different, right? Right. <laughs> right. Oh. So what's scary about this is that the public doesn't seem to – a lot of the public is still buying into this. I didn't have to pay any commissions, and the remarketing fee is the fair cost of doing business. Hmm. But the remarketing fee is commissions on the next sale. You're paying commissions on somebody else's sale rather than on your own. It really it's, – it's a wild little turn of words. Hmm. Uh, the reason it can be six and up to 12, in the words of Open Door, when they have to hold the homes longer, either because the market slowed down or because this home is a little tricky, if they have to hold the home longer, they say they will, in, they will have a higher remarketing fee. So it's not just the commissions, it's also the hold time that they're building into that six to 12%. When they first came to town about two years ago, the vast majority of their purchases showed a 6% remarketing fee. Today, we're seeing that creep up, and it's more like 8 Um, I still haven't seen any really at 12 There may be some out there, but I haven't personally seen them. So 6 7 8% remarketing fee. Wow. So take that 290 price, roll out your 8% remarketing fee. That's another 23000 or so. So now we've got, what's that make, 2, two uh 267. We're not done yet. Now they're going to send somebody over their own inspector. So if I have a buyer, a retail buyer comes in to buy that house at 300, they're going to have an inspector too. The inspector they hire is a third-party real estate inspector licensed by the state who comes in and says, here's what's wrong with the house, and then you can decide what you want to fix. They know that they're not going to fix the house. They're just there to inspect. They don't have a dog in the fight. They're there to give you a arm's length third party um, a, a, a look at what the house needs, a, a fair look at what are the things that the house might need. That's the way it's done if you're working with a retail buyer. With oh. Open Door, that inspector is their employee. So he will not only be inspecting the house and telling you what the house needs, he'll also be telling you what it's going to cost. Okay. So he's modified the contract. Instead of the contract in Arizona, the contract says, that inspector or the buyer can tell you what he needs to close and give you a chance to fix it. It's not a renegotiation of price. It's a chance for the seller to fix the items that the buyer finds objectionable. Okay. Open Door modifies that contract and says, no, it's a renegotiation of price. Hmm. So what happens is they come in and they say, we want GFCI outlets in this kitchen. Now the house was built in 1965. There were no GFCI outlets in kitchens at that time. 
it's perfectly fine. It's grandfathered. It doesn't require those. Well, you know what? A lot of uh, a lot of buyers might ask for that too. They can ask for anything they like. GFCI outlets are what ten bucks at Home Depot, and you bring in your favorite handyman or the homeowner himself screws them in, and you're done. But when you see these on Open Door, apparently they hire the Pope, or the outlets are blessed by the Pope or something, because you wind up with just a whole different kind of price point. So they get to put the price on all of their repairs, and then they tell you. Here's what we're willing. Here's what that settlement statement's going to need. We're going to need our twenty-three thousand for the remarketing fee, and we're going to need what we're finding is that an average, pretty clean house, a house that we would expect to settle the Benzer for a thousand or two, we're finding that that Benzer offer from Open Door comes in at ten thousand, probably fifteen thousand average on a pretty clean house. Wow. So you're getting hit pretty hard there too, if it's not such a clean house. And a lot of the people are trying to. A lot of the people that are attracted to Open Door, are the people that know their house has some issues. Right. So we have seen thirty and forty thousand dollar Benzers. Uh, Benzer is uh, buyer's inspection notice and seller's response, the uh, uh, negotiation of repairs document that we use here in Arizona. Oh, okay. So thirty or forty thousand dollars there when we might have settled it for five thousand on a tough house, a thousand on an easy house, that's a pretty significant hit too. So the end result is they offered you 290, but the seller in many cases is walking out with 245, 240, something like that. And I did, if I did hear you correctly, you said that you know an agent might say you know it'd be worth 300 on the open market. The estimate right. from uh, the i buyer open door comes in at 290. Then you're less the remarketing fee. Let's just call it eight percent for uh, for argument's sake. And then you've got the the inspection. Now, did I hear you say that the home inspectors in Arizona are licensed by the state? Yes, and they don't have to be. You can you can hang your shingle out as a non-licensed inspector, but most of the inspectors that realtors are using are in fact licensed. Okay, we don't have that here. But we don't have any. I don't think any standards. I mean, you might be able to belong to a council or something like that, but I don't think they're regulated at all here. You just put out your shingle, and you're good to go. So that's. Uh, that's probably a plus for your market down there. It sounds like you guys are maybe not over-regulated, but, but regulated enough for, you know, to uh, stop, you know, guys from just taking advantage of people all the time. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, I really think that uh, Judy Lowe, our commissioner, does a great job, our real estate commissioner, does a great job of finding that proper balance of uh, making sure that we're serving the public well making sure that there are no rogue agents out there that are doing bad things. She's really good at yanking those folks by the tail um, and keeping everybody playing clean. So, I mean, I've always thought Judy is uh, Judy Lowe is just one of the probably the best commissioner we could ever have for her ability to find that balance. Well, I think you probably know that you're you're very lucky to have that because uh, you've been in the business long enough to know that your peers around the country probably are not so close with their governing bodies and the heads of that state. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And um, you, we have one thing is that Judy's in the in the real estate uh, in the realtor world constantly. You can probably find her speaking. I'm sure she speaks at least once a week. Uh, so if you want to go meet her and find out her take on something, or just meet her personally and sort sort of see how she really is, she's the real deal. She understands the market. She's open to these new concepts. She's not exclusionary. But she has a, you know, she definitely prefers that everybody play on the on a level playing field. 
Yeah, well, I'm pleased to hear that because it seems like our market um, has, the, our regulating body has tended to um, favor the discount, the FISBO uh, concept, and let them get away with much more than anybody that's regulated as a realtor could get away with. And, I mean, I'm crying out loud, 15 or 20 years ago, I had a meeting within my own organization here in the Niagara Association of Realtors uh, about how to use 4% to selling broker to potentially put more money in your pocket. And my executive came and brought me a cease and desist because they said, I, and one, I wasn't protected if any charges came. And two, it could be seen having that many realtors in a room talking about commissions as anti-competitive. So, I mean, I went on with it, but I went on with half the numbers that I had because, you know, many of the brokers were saying, hey, you don't want to get caught at this meeting. It could be anti-competitive. So are you finding that the regular – go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think that topic, you're right on it, Jim. I think I think that Sherman antitrust laws in the U.S. don't know what the equivalent is in Canada. But the Sherman antitrust law is the one that we have to be careful of. And um, the Federal Trade Commission has been hot on this topic for years, trying to find a way to pierce the uh, the broker community and say that we're all in cahoots for the same commission. <laughs> um, it, we're really not. In fact, we see all these competitive models coming in and all these people trying these other plans. But as you've said on some of your other uh, other shows that you've recorded, uh, they come in, they stir up the market with this low commission, and they go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And they do because, uh, you know, it, back to my Starbucks example, when that tenth car comes around, you can't charge them fifteen bucks for everybody else's coffee. You really do. This is what it takes to run a competitive business in real estate. Is it takes those types of commissions. Um, we operate. We're a hundred percent brokerage, so we operate on a very thin margin. We'll bring in a half million dollars of commissions in a month. If all goes well on my thin margin, being a 100% broker, I wind up keeping 5,000 of it or so at the end of the month. I'm operating on a grocery store level 1% kind of margin. Um, if I have any unusual expenses, never mind that 1%, it's gone. Right. So when we look at how real estate works these days, the public thinks, you know, they see that number on their closing statement and they think, wow, I paid out $20,000 commissions. Those guys have the life, you know. Yeah. They don't realize that it takes you know, many months and in many cases years to nurture that buyer or to nurture that seller and to, in fact, land that commission. And, in fact, in Arizona right now, the average realtor in Arizona is making like $35,000 a year. You can do that well at McDonald's. You know, you repeat after me. Would you like fries with that? There you go. You just got a raise. <laughs> wow. That's shocking to hear. Now, these are all full-time professionals. No, certainly not. Okay. No, no. If we go with the full-time professionals, we do have a different number. Okay. But it's very telling that over half of our market are not full-time, and that's yeah. one of the issues that occurs. So we have right now about 33,000, I believe, agents in our MLS. Okay. This is the uh, Armless Arizona Region MLS. That's a big That's uh, a big. Uh, predominantly board. the Phoenix market. Right. Big board. Yeah, big board. 35,000, 33,000 agents, somewhere in there. If we take a look at that agent, if it's 33,000, the median agent is that guy at number 16,500. Right. We had a big year last year. That guy sold two houses. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's how I know it's a big year. If we go back a few years ago, that guy sold one. And during the crash, that guy sold zero. Right. And everyone underneath him sold zero, too. That's right. That's right. right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what's happening is in, in around the world or around the, around the United States, I don't know about the world, around the United States, we hear numbers like the average agent sells 10. I think it's probably closer to six. In our board, the average is around three. 
Okay. The reason the average is that is largely because we have twice as many agents as we should have. So NAR says, based on the number of realtors, we're back to, I believe, 1.1 or 1.2 million realtors nationwide now, compared that into 350, 360 million Americans. We're working with, I think the exact math worked out to be 304 civilians for, for, uh, for every real estate agent in the country. Right, right. In Arizona, it's 154 civilians for every agent. Mm-hmm. So we have twice the number of agents we should have, and that results in half the commissions that we should have. Mm-hmm. And the Puro, uh, Puro, 80-20 rule still applies? I'm looking for the distribution, Absolutely. the name of the distribution that's escaping Puro. I uh, can't even say it. <laughs> so, yeah, your, your top 20% are doing 80% of the business and probably more like 10 and 90 uh, yeah, I, I'd say 80-20 is probably about correct on that, but yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, same thing here in our office. We have, out of 120 agents, uh, if I draw the line at 100,000, I believe that number worked out to be uh, about 10%. My top 10% made 100 or more. Okay. If we draw the line at 50,000, a good, you know, about the median income for a full-time working person, uh, not full-time working realtor, but a full-time working person mm-hmm. here in our market, uh, then we wind up with 35 or so. So 30% of our staff making a good, livable, workable wage. Uh, what do you, what, what's your take on why the anti-competitive or the government's or the regulation, uh, the regulating bodies, they, if, if it's the same as in Canada, they seem to really favor these concepts that go broke with the idea that you know, they're protecting the, the seller or the, the marketplace somehow. Uh, and, you know, I, I fall back to the position of, you know, we've been doing this for, what, 100 years or not quite exactly, but organized real estate has been around a long time. And sure. especially in this market, you know, when you got open door and iBuyer and blockchain coming, I don't know if you can speak to that, but, uh, you know, nothing without value lasts. People just don't use it. And, you know, my position as a realtor of 25 years, obviously, is, you know, I'm going to be able to get more money than you can privately, absolutely, and probably more than 5 or 6% more. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a job. I mean, you just don't put a sign on a house and advertise it and blow your brains out in advertising and sell houses. If that was true, realtors wouldn't have jobs. So, again, I fall back to the position that, you know, if we didn't have value at 5 or 6%, then we just wouldn't be able to collect it anymore. Well, you really hit on something there, Jim, and I want to I want to explore that with you, and especially in relation to the iBuyers and how they're making it easier for us as agents. Okay, so what what you just said is we must be worth our money because people pay it. But I think I think that seller wants to know a little bit more than that. The seller is the one paying the commissions, really, not the buyer. So that seller who's committed to five percent or six percent or seven percent for your listing wants to know why are you worth that. And it's difficult sometimes for us as, as realtors, as professionals, to be able to show exactly why we're worth that until now. So now we have the iBuyers out there. So what I'm recommending to my agents all the time, and we teach on this every week, is that when they're going out on a listing presentation, that they include the iBuyers in that presentation. The way they're going to do it is say, I'm going to take your listing at whatever percent they like. They pick their percentage. They take their listing of that percentage, and then what we're going to do is the very next day, the first day we're ready to go to market, we're going to be calling Open Door, OfferPad, and Zillow. Zillow, remember, is now an iBuyer in our market, too. They come in with a few billion dollars of cash. So we're going to call those folks and say, come on down and give us a bid on this house. Okay? Okay. We're going to get bids from at least two of them. The one that looks best, we're going to ask them to go all the way through. Remember that first bid 
If I told them the house is worth 300, I'm anticipating that first bid is going to be very close to that. Might be 290, might be 300, might be 305. I've seen them bid higher than my listing price. Mm. Keep in mind that that's not a real number yet. That's nothing right. more than like the 12% clickbait headline that you clicked on to find me. Well, because that's it's nothing pre, more than something to get their attention. It's pre-inspection and pre, uh, pre-appraisal uh, as well. Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So they they put in their number and then they bring in their eight percent and then they bring in in the case of OfferPad the the closing costs are all borne by the seller. Um, uh, open door c- covers some of those costs. So then there's closing costs, and then comes the binder. And by the time we're done, we're seeing that $300,000 bid turn into 240, or a 290 bid turn into 230. And not always. Some houses are cleaner. But what we tell them is, and this is the approach I'm trying to get all my agents to take: list with me. If it turns out that you decide to sell to an eye buyer, who you really need representation then, oh, because yeah. they're buying in our market, they're buying 150 homes a month. Great point. They're pretty good at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can probably uh, negotiate that, better than you can. And, and they're not doing this because they're losing money. <laughs> and the money they make is the money that we could be making for you. Right. So you really need somebody in your corner that knows exactly how their rules work, that can work with them within their rules, and get you the best money. Mm-hmm. And believe me, there's a giant difference in what we're going to negotiate on that Binzer if I'm involved than there is if they just have you to run over. Great point. But here's the thing. I'll do it for you for 1%. Mm. I'll represent your side for 1% if you choose an iBuyer. The reason I'll do that is because if you're choosing an iBuyer, I'll I'll make it even easier for the iBuyer. You only have to give up 1% so your net is still higher. Even with that said, I don't think you're going to want the iBuyer. No. Not if you're talking tens of thousands of dollars less. Right. I think you're going to be one of those crazy, wacky customers that wants full retail. <laughs> you know, we never find those, do we? No, well, right. more common in your market than mine, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if, if that's the case, let us do this. Now we have a backstop number. Now, I, uh, all the iBuyers will tell you that number is good for three weeks or six weeks or whatever their particular rules call out. Um, but if you call them at the end of that time and say, hey, would you come look at my house again? They're probably going to land back on pretty much that same number and buy the house. Okay, they still want to buy houses. So here's the thing: if I take that listing and we know that the seller can net 240 if we sell to the i buyer, now we have a now we have a bogey, right? Mm-hmm. So now, in order for me to earn my three percent that I'd rather earn rather than the one percent, I need to make sure that I'm able to net that seller more. Right. And in fact, what we find is it's not all that hard to do. So. One of our great agents here, an agent who does great advertising, and he's a great team leader. He does several hundred homes a year. He's now advertising on his TV spot how much he beat the iBuyers by. So he's doing the same thing I'm suggesting. And that's not illegal down there. Yeah. He does it it very gently and subtly. (laughs) subtly. The the quotes from his clients say he brought me $23,000 more than the wholesaler offered. Oh, nice. Things like that. Well, that's what we should be doing. Think about being able to show your value now. Mm -hmm. Instead of just telling them you should pay me this 6% or 7% commission because I'm worth it, now we can say, look, I'll work for 1% if, in fact, we go to the iBuyer. If we don't go to the iBuyer and I bring you a retail customer and you make more money, then pay me what I'm worth. So it's very much the proof is going to be in the pudding. I'll put that all in writing. We'll make the deal work for you. And every time, if we say it's a $300,000 house, we usually don't miss by much. 
Yeah, that so really we, my your listing to sale ratio really surprises me. I mean, you'd think that people are the same all over the world. Maybe your agents are better than walk uh, better at walking away from overpriced listings, but I mean, in my market, you know, it could be ten tens of twenty, you know, fifty thousand dollars over. You know, I I tend to walk away from those listings because they're a waste of my time and money. And as an independent contractor, it's actually my money going into the marketing of the houses. But it's not uncommon for agents, especially if they're in the bottom eighty percent of the production, to just take a fifty thousand dollar overpriced, per, uh, you know, listing. Oh, it gets me, it gets me a sign on the lawn. It gets me an open house to 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 scrape buyers from. It gets me on the MLS system. It makes me look busy. I'll just take it, hoping that you know, it'll sell someday. Type of thing. Uh, well, I need to correct something there. You're calling that a listing to sell ratio. I, the, we we sell ninety seven percent of list price. Right. That's our that's our sales price ratio. But the number of listings that sell, I believe, is in the seventies. I believe we do have yeah. twenty five thirty percent of our listings that don't sell. No, and that's exactly so, what I meant is the, is the price, the listing okay. to sale price ratio. As far as the, you know, I I thought you said ninety four percent, but if you're saying ninety seven, even even more. Uh, yeah. You know, it, like it. I can't imagine that the real estate agents are creating the the, the property values. Uh, so what do you what do you chalk it up to? Just a more educated seller that says, you know what, I'm never going to get that price. I'll just list it for what it's worth and get it. Or stronger agents saying, no, uh, you know, we don't take listings like that. I mean, if they're well, going FISBO or Purple Brex or something. I, I think it's actually just evolved over time that okay. our market, because it is a big, robust market, um, it becomes something where we can pretty well, especially if you're dealing with track homes, especially if you're dealing with cookie cutters in a neighborhood, okay. you can predict pretty darn close what that house is going to bring. Okay. If you're dealing with a big wheeling custom out on a lot of land, it's much harder to guess that number. Right. But remember that the initial list price, if the initial list price right. is a little bit high here, and you talked about at the beginning of this call about the Canadians that come in and want to make a 750 offer on a million-dollar house, yep. and they don't understand that they're not even going to get a reply. In our market, there will be no reply. There will be no counteroffer. They'll <laughs> just assume that the person is uneducated and let them go get educated and come back and try again. Wow. So what happens in our market is through the years it's evolved to a point that because it is going to sell within 3% typically or within 4% mm -hmm. of list price, 96 97% is the most common ratio month by month. Wow. Um, because that's the case, we typically see agents and buyers – just walking around the homes that are overpriced, they don't even bother looking at them oh, okay. because there are plenty of others that are priced right. Wow. That's and, and it's an unforgiving market. If that $300,000 house is priced at three thirty, it's not going to get a single showing. Really? Price it at three ten, and now you'll probably get showings and we'll get an offer and we'll get it sold. So even 20000 on a $300,000 price point could be the difference between no showings and being sold in a week. That's, that's, Correct. that's fascinating. Correct. And if... And if the listing agent and the seller perceived that that three hundred thousand dollar price was right, and somebody offers two eighty, twenty thousand below, I would tell you you're fifty fifty on whether you're going to get a reply at all. Based on the listing they, agent saying just don't even bother with it. Yeah, they're just they feel like they're too far apart. Twenty thousand, that's like insurmountable. <laughs> now, not my agents. I'm telling my agents always, always, always back. counter. Yes, you know, always. just don't be offended. They can offer they can offer two hundred on my three hundred thousand dollar house. I like to counter back at two ninety nine. Yeah, perfectly fine. You know, and then at some point we stay still until they start moving. Mm -hmm. um, I had one case where the counteroffer the the counteroffer came in. We actually had the buyer who I think was Canadian. 
that made a crazy low offer, something like 130 on a 170 condo, um, that, that our buyer came up $5,000 per counter offer, and the final selling price was within 5000 of retail. Wow. So, it was eight, eight counter offers to bring them up until we finally got them back to where they needed to be. Wow. The, the seller's agent, to, to their credit, just held their ground and very calmly replied back with a counter offer with the exact same price every time. And finally, the whole deal came together at $5,000 below the list price. So our market may be peculiar in that way. It's evolved that way. We have, still have people from the Midwest. It's not just Canadians. People from the Midwest or from the East Coast that come in and want to, you know, shoot a warning shot over the bow, a hundred thousand blow list, mm. and we'll tell them it's probably not going to work, you know. Um, and we try to educate them about the way our market works. It's much closer to the actual sales price. Now, do you have uh, any situations where you find the buyers paying the broker directly and taking the the selling broker, or the buyer broker commission out of the price of the listing? I mean, it seems like a natural progression. I mean, even though the buyers aren't used to paying commission, it seems kind of almost, I mean, you have an agency agreement under the listing agent. The buyer agent actually works for the buyer, but he's getting paid by the seller. In other words, the more money he gets the seller, the more money he gets as a buyer's agent. It seemed a little bit of a conflict. I just thought that it would have evolved more organically by now to a point of buyers being just used to paying the commission, maybe getting the price off the house, even though, I mean, I guess that's difficult in some some cases where the buyers don't have the cash on hand. That's a lot of cash that comes out of their down payment. Well, there's that. And then the other issue is I think you almost you almost came across the answer there. If if I tell you as a buyer that your seller is going to pay the commission for you, so don't worry about it, you'll probably not worry about it. But I tell you, if I tell you as a buyer that when we're all done, you need to write me a check for commission, that's a whole different thing. Mm. Um, it's just like if you have health insurance, I probably shouldn't say this to a Canadian. You know, I, you, this is not a fair comparison. But if we have health insurance here and uh, my deductible is covered for the year and I can go in and have that uh, procedure done and it costs $5,000, I'm happy. doesn't matter if it's worth 5000 or not. But if we're still having to pay for it myself, I'm inside my deductible, I'm probably going to argue about that $5,000 and see why is it so high. Can't we make that 1000 bucks? Mm-hmm. Um, it's totally different if it's your own money that you're writing the check for. Right. In this case, we're dealing with the seller paying the commission. They're perfectly happy to see us make 3%. If they were writing that check, it'd be a different fight. So the way this has evolved, the way NAR evolved the code of ethics, which really does revolve around protecting the public, but also making sure that realtors have a way to make a living, it's really pretty brilliant when you look at it. The mm-hmm. psychology behind it, that the seller, who is about to receive a great big check for their house, is the only one that ever sees the commission rate, and the only one that's impacted by it is really far favorable to the idea of having every every buyer pay their commission separately and outside of escrow. If we did that, we'd impact several things. More buyers wouldn't qualify because they would need another 3%, whatever commissions are, 2%, 3%, 4%, Good point. in order to buy a house. Mm-hmm. So we would have – we'd impact the buyability of the market. So there's a number of things that the way this has evolved is actually really brilliant. So. My hats off to the founders of the Code of Ethics. What was that, 1910 or so? Really? Um, For for getting that all put together and figuring it out. Wow. Yeah, it's a long time for organized real estate. And, uh, you know, there's been so many hacks that have taken all over the continent, I think, as far as trying to disrupt 
or break this so-called monopoly, whether it be MLS information or, you know, collusion on prices or any competitive nature. I mean, I, I don't buy into the, any of those arguments, but it, it's, uh, you know, it, the structure has been around for, you know, a long time, almost 100 years. So what, what do you look at as far as, you know, the future uh, uh, trends, uh, you, you know, uh, I've heard many people say for many decades almost, oh, you, the Internet's going to, it's going to change everything. You know, agents aren't going to, I mean, it has changed things from the standpoint that most of the buyers are saying, hey, I found the house, can we go see it? And do you want to, can you write an offer on it more than uh, me driving by something and saying, hey, I mean, because you've got automatic updates with email and everything. So things have changed, but the the fee structure has changed a little bit, but we don't see the industry collapsing. I mean, with 33,000 or 35,000 members in your your area there, I guess that speaks volumes. Yeah, for sure. And, and NAR is, in fact, uh, reapproaching the old uh, high water mark, which was right before the real estate crash. Uh, 1.4 million realtors were, were quickly uh, coming back up on that number again. So people do want to be in real estate. It is an attractive uh, business to be in. I think it's the greatest business in the world if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, no other business in the world can I have billions and billions of dollars worth of inventory um, that, that is at my disposal. And all I really need is, uh, is a fresh ballpoint pen and a pad, mm. uh, and I can be in business. Uh, obviously, that's one of our problems as an industry is the low bar to get involved mm -hmm. uh, here in Arizona. Uh, Commissioner Lowe is talking all the time about, is there a way to raise that bar without being exclusionary? Mm -hmm. Not an easy task. We'd like to raise the bar and make it a little tougher to get into real estate, but any effort in that direction begins to look like we're protecting the existing realtors, and that's not something that Commissioner Lowe would play oh, nice about. She wants, to, she wants to keep the door open, but at the same time, be fair to, um, fair to the public. I've never so heard I think that argument. If we had tougher licensing laws and more things that you have to do, something I'd love to see happen, it'll never happen, but something I'd love to see wow. happen is huh. when you go for renewal of your license, if you've been selling three houses or more a year, renew right here, it's 50 bucks, you're done. If you haven't sold three houses a year, then there's additional classes that are gonna be required. Right. And if you haven't sold any houses, then it's gonna be quite a lot of additional classes required. Right. And this would protect the public better. This would limit the numbers. This would help the existing practitioners to make more money, but it would definitely be seen as exclusionary. It would be seen as a roadblock to new people and new models trying to get into the business. I've never heard the argument that that actually protects the existing realtors that are already licensed. Like, who who cares? Is, this is, you know, everyone's going to be subject to the new rules at some point. Is for, Well, we have renewing licenses, so every two years we have to take 24 credits and so many courses online to make sure that we're updated it's pretty mickey mouse it's you know it's a program that you just click through really i mean you don't really have to really answer anything or read anything so it is kind of mickey mouse that way but in canada at least ontario we've increased the the licensing requirements to i maybe maybe i'm exaggerating a little bit here because i haven't really taken the it's been 25 years since i took the course and it was three courses uh, it was pretty, you know, three-hour exams. It, it was a decent, um, you know, the courses were two, three weeks long, in class, 40 hours a week type of thing. Now I'm hearing, and I know people that have gone through, uh, the, the the exams are much harder, and it's being equated more to almost like a, a college, a university course from the standpoint of the volume of information that's required and the testing uh, that's required. Of course, we've got a 75% uh, pass rate as well, so... Uh, I just think that's an interesting argument that it would be exclusionary and protecting the people already in the business. But, man, 
if you want to raise the bar, what, what are what what are you left to as far as uh, you know education? Well, I, I agree with you. I mean, that is the bar here in Arizona. It's ninety hours of classroom time for your first license. Another ninety hours if you want to be a broker. Um, and then the CE is, as you said, 24 for a regular practitioner, 30 hours for brokers uh, with some specific uh, broker management clinic, which are a little more rigorous type courses to take. But all of that is fairly simple and fairly easy, and it really comes down to sitting in a classroom and staying half awake and being a good test taker. Mm. Uh, we have a 50 or 60% pass rate on our first-time test takers, uh, but you can take it as many times as you need. And I know that there are people practicing real estate today that needed multiple, six, seven, eight, in some cases, 10 or 12 times to pass that test. So uh, the tests are fairly meaningless if you could just do them over and over until lightning strikes. <laughs> um, a, a better answer is, in fact, once you start practicing, you know, that um, rather than just punitive, if you do something wrong, then we pull you up by the tail. Instead of that, maybe we have something that says, let's see how much you're doing. And what that would do is those people, if we take the draw the line at six sales, the people in our MLS that have done six sales, that probably gets us into, how we guess, around the 75th or 80th percentile. So we take that top 20 or 25% of the agents, and they're the agents that we really want to see practicing. It, it, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to be exclusionary, but the people that are selling six homes a year or more have a good idea what they're doing. The people that are selling one or two homes a year, you know, at least they know a little bit about what they're doing. The person who has a license who sold a home two years ago is absolutely dangerous, right. and I see it as a I see it as a designated broker, where I'm having to review their paperwork, and in many cases having to call them and say, "Hey, let's talk about the way you wrote this contract." Mm. Interesting, man. I really appreciate the time as your wealth of information. I'm surprised how similar the the rules and regulations are as far as uh, our, our regulating bodies go. What's your take on uh, NAR and the service that you're getting down there for the fees that you're paying? Uh, have yet to been been to, uh, maybe I'll go to San Francisco this year for their conference, but I have been, yet to be at one yet. But uh, what's your take on NAR and, what, and the representation that you get from them? You know, it's a very popular thing to bash the associations oh, of realtors, whether local or whether NAR. Okay. Um, and I'm not, I'm not much of a basher for that. Um, there are things that they do that I don't like. Well, you know, welcome to the world. There's no, you know, that's true of everybody. Right. But overall, when we look at what the structure is and what the structure does, I, I hear agents calling all the time for, why don't we abolish MLS and let's go it on our own. Well, do a couple commercial deals where there is no equivalent of MLS uh -huh. and where every phone call to find out if you can show the property starts with, are you paying a cooperating broker and what are you paying them? Mm -hmm. You know, you have to know that first. It's, it's a whole different world. Be careful what you wish for because the people that are saying we're not getting what we need out of NAR, we're not getting our money's worth, perhaps they're taking NAR forward and that's a good thing. But the idea of saying we can replace it, I think that would be a very bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think if you replace the MLS, and replace NAR, then you've also wiped out the code of ethics. And the code of ethics is to give you an idea of how long lasting and how effective it's been. Arizona became a state, uh, let's see, 1912, yesterday was the uh, February 14th, 1912, was when Arizona became a state. They put into rules, they put in, uh, into writing all the Arizona uh, real estate rules shortly thereafter, and guess what they modeled them after? the National Association of Realtors Code of Ethics. So a lot of the rules that we see in Code of Ethics are in fact law in Arizona because Arizona didn't build real estate rules until 
after the creation of NAR. So that shows how effective those have been. They've not been modified very far from that original start point in 110 years. It really does work. Do we want to get out there and say, let's throw everything out? All these folks saying real estate is ripe for disruption. You know, the idea that people can see houses on the Internet is not going to resolve it. The only people buying houses on the Internet are investors, and they're not, they don't care what the pictures look like at all. Mm-hmm. They're looking at the spreadsheet. But for people that are going to live in that house, the vast majority of homes sold, they need to walk in. The agent needs to watch their eyes. We're looking to see when that client walks in and their face lights up, when that client can picture their family growing up there, when they can picture their their baby daughter's birthday, when they can picture their grandparents passing away in that home. That's what we're trying to sell is home. That it's, it's far more personable than – it's far more personal and important than something that you would ever buy off a website. Mm-hmm. So those that say we can disrupt this business and we can turn it into a – um, an information business where, where the information's on the internet, they're with there, but we don't need anybody else. Yeah, they've missed the point. That's not what we're selling here. Mm-hmm. Not what we do. And it's not why we're worth the money. Got it, Byron. That's we're at an hour already. I don't want to. I uh, want to respect your time, but I don't want to cut you loose without talking about the trends in brokerage. Is uh, you mentioned you're 100 uh, percent brokerage. I don't think that even exists in Canada, or certainly in Ontario. It's not that popular right at the moment. Uh, but as usual, things come from the south and the west and the states where the bigger markets are. So uh, what do you see trending as far as some of these? Oh, we talked about Compass. We talked about some of these uh, these agencies that are looking at the book of business that is a, you know, a traditional real estate brokerage as something that is uh, valuable and maybe financeable. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, an insurance agent can sell their book of business. Uh, a realtor has never, I mean, it's very difficult in Canada to do that. So what's your take on on uh, the trends for brokers and what might be, we, we might see coming in the future? Well, you know, um, if you look at the 100% movement, uh, there are two places trying to take credit for it. Um, Realty Executives, which started here in Phoenix, says that they invented the concept. Uh, they invented the concept, and then they had a young upstart guy named Dave Lineker who was supposed to go to start that concept in Denver, mm. and Dave instead landed Remax. Remax, yeah. So, so Dave Lineker and um, uh, the folks over at, uh, at Realty Executives both claimed that they started the, the trend. At that time, let's take the Remax model because it was the more successful of the two. At that time, the idea was you're going to rent a desk from us. Right. So the broker needs to only – cover all of the desk costs and overhead costs. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need any money from the transaction whatsoever. So he charges the agent, the practitioner, uh, a desk fee. He collects enough agents that he's got his nut cracked. He's got a, he, he's really renting out space. Mm-hmm. And that was the concept. And 100%, every last dime goes directly to the agent. That's evolved now. Uh, with Remax going public, it's now 95.5. So they're not a 100% store anymore. They're a 95% store. And the other thing that's happened is that Remax has added on more and more fees. So the monthly fee is there. In our market, that monthly fee starts at a low of about 800, moves up to 1400, 1500 if you want a private office or subscribe to a lead program or some other things. Right. So we see very high monthly fees for a Remax agent, and then a five percent split to the broker. Hundred mm-hmm. um, percent real estate's a little bit different. In our market. 
accepting the idea that uh, realty executives and REMAX are 100 percenters, which it's arguable whether they really are or not, right. accepting that idea and moving instead towards a HomeSmart, for instance. HomeSmart is $300 per market. They charge $25 per month. These are broad strokes. They may have some other fees, but this is pretty much what they advertise and pretty much what they do. So and a practitioner can sign up there for $25 a month. He can land a contract of almost any size for $300. They do have some limitations on your first big deal of the year, but basically 300 bucks a transaction, and that's all they pay. So how do they stay in business? Well, in the case of HomeSmart, they have 6,000 agents. Okay. 6,000 agents under a single designated broker. Uh, they have multiple locations, of course, but even 6,000 agents paying 25 bucks each, $150,000 a month covers a lot of overhead. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're working with. Competing against them are about 1 million, not an exact count, about a million other 100% brokers in our market. Uh, everything from small brokers, self-employed brokers, people that have three, four, five agents, medium-sized brokers like myself at 120, and then the large brokers that have 1,000 plus. Right now in the Phoenix market, something on the order of 70, 75% of the agents working in Phoenix will tell you they're on a 100% plan. That 100% plan means different things to different people. So does 100% work? Yep, you bet. Who does it work for? It works for the agent. Does it work for the broker? Now there's an interesting question. Mm. So remember what I said before about in our company, we bring in half a million dollars a month in commissions and there's only $5,000 left after we pay overhead. And by the way, our overhead, we own the buildings. <laughs> we are we are neat and clean. We're about as, as clean as you could ever be to run a company of this size. And that's what it takes for us to be able to operate on that 1%, um, 1% profit rate. It's very, very tight business. So when you start looking at how 100% business is going to work, it's not easy. So I think currently in our market, and we are probably ahead of the rest of the country in this, I know of no other market in the country with that percentage of 100% offices, 100% practitioners. So we are now starting to see pushback. We're starting to see the agents that are going, hey, I'll pay a split if you'll take care of some things for me and give me a few more services. Ah. So it's starting to make some sense. The idea when you go to some of these big 100% shops is, yeah, they charge me nothing, but that's fair because I'm getting nothing. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do in our market with my brokerage is we have an indoor, we have an art department inside. We have lots and lots of documents. We have meetings, two or three meetings a week of training meetings and different programs you can attend. So we're trying to provide a service to the agent that matches what a Coldwell Banker or a Russell uh, Sotheby's would have or any of these big major franchises, something equal to a Berkshire Hathaway. We're trying to provide that level of service. We're just trying to do it for less. So the way to do that is we have to be lean and mean in our finances. We have to be smart about what we pay the agents, how what we give the agents for free. Um, and then the agents have to be willing to understand, yeah, they're going to have to buy their own yard signs. So, for instance, at a Sotheby's franchise here in town, uh, the yard signs are paid for by the broker. Well, would you rather have an 80-20 split plus a 7% royalty fee, or would you rather receive, like we do, 100% minus my fee on a my fee on a house is point double one times the sales price. So if you sell a two hundred thousand dollar house, it's two hundred bucks. If you sell a five hundred thousand dollar house, it's five hundred bucks. You keep the rest. So my fee is it works out to be about a three percent split if you're getting a three percent listing. 
right? Three and a third percent split. So would you rather have a three and a third percent that you pay me or 20% that you pay Sotheby's plus the 7% royalty? If I buy you signs, will you get me, pay me that 27%? <laughs> I'd be happy to do it, yeah. you know? And so what we just did is we're seeing agents that are saying, I don't want to pay a monthly fee. Right. Whether it's 25 bucks or whether it's 100 bucks, I don't want to be billed anything. So we've started offering that now. We have a no monthly fee plan, and then we go to a tr traditional split for that client. But we're doing that traditional split at 9%. Wow. No okay. no franchise fee, nothing else. I did all the math, and I can work on that traditional split, 9% and no monthly fee. Interesting. Yep. So that's giving our agents a choice, and currently – as they vote with their wallets, we currently are 50-50. Half my agents are on no monthly fee, and that is predominantly the agents that are going to do five or less units a year. Right. Half of my agents are on monthly fees, and that's predominantly those that do five or more per year. Mm -hmm. And my average, by the way, in our brokerage, we average right at six sales sides per agent per year. So we are averaging about twice what the market average is here. And how many agents you carry? 120. Wow. And how many offices? Uh, three locations. Two that are primary offices, and then we have a little walking mall location that's good for walk-in traffic. Oh, like two primary house. locations yeah. for agents, so yeah. Okay, nice. Private offices or two, uh, uh, bullpens? Uh, no, no private offices, and really bullpens are kind of a thing of the past too. So what we have are um, there's what we call mini conference rooms. Every office has uh, between one and three mini conference rooms. So you can show up, and there's a TV on the wall and a computer, and you have enough room in there to plop down on a nice granite desk, you and your client, and look at contracts and write deals. Wow. And those are those rooms are eight foot by eight foot oh, little really? closed rooms that it's very easy to bring a client into and sit down and do your work. Eight by eight. Holy cow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what yeah. it takes it, to it, it works. Yeah, I think they might be nine by nine. But they're, <laughs> they're tiny little rooms. <laughs> they're easy to use. They've got the, they're fully equipped. And that's really all an agent needs. So, you know, we started looking at how many agents are doing their work at Starbucks and how many agents are doing their work at home and how many are going in the office. Right. And it doesn't make sense for an agent to be contributing to the high overhead that's included in office space for the broker. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's uh, one of the things that drives me crazy. This is a personal pet peeve. It drives me crazy to see how many people in our industry are not owning their own real estate. Brokers are renting their office space. Why would you do that if you're in real estate? And yet we see it all the time. So Sotheby's franchise here in our area just dropped one lease, ended one lease, and went into a new lease. Do you think the rent went down or up? I'm just going to take a wild guess and say it went up. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to take a wild guess and say it goes up every year on an escalator, right. just like it normally does in commercial. Mm -hmm. I, I bought my buildings. I think it makes sense to do that. We bought the buildings. We bought one of the buildings in the crash, the other one last year or two years ago. Um, it makes sense to do that. Build it the way you want and know that we've locked in the rent. Mm -hmm. But if you don't believe in real estate, I suppose you rent. No, yeah, I guess so. It does seem a little hypocritical. Uh, how, how about this, uh, the idea of these boutique shops getting scooped up here and there? Yeah, it's, uh, that's back to Compass again. So there are some companies out there, and Compass is a great example of that pushback I was talking about. People pushing back on the 100% saying, I want more services. So Compass, very well-funded private company, uh, East Coast company, I believe they started in New York, in fact, um, out there picking up cool little boutique offices, uh, especially high-end uh, luxury home boutiques, okay. uh, picking those up and paying very good money for them to the owners. Uh, 
paying signing bonuses to the agents that they're bringing on. Um, very cool approach to real estate. Absolutely flies in the face of 100%. Totally the opposite. Uh, they're going to buy a lot of things for that for that agent. They're going to basically pay for everything for the agent. Splits are, of course, very high in order to cover that cost. I think it's great to see that movement as well. Hmm. What, what's a Let, split look like in that uh, concept? Well, we don't have uh, we don't have any of those here yet, okay. and I think that Compass would probably find it hard to come into our market. I'm sure they'll probably get here sooner or later. They're probably working on it as we speak. But um, our market, where we have this predominance of 100% shops. It's harder to come in and say, hey, we have this great plan. Let's go 50-50. Uh, you know, it's, that's unusual in our market. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by that concept, too, because I think, there's, I think there could be a market for, you know, maybe you got health benefits, you've got a car allowance, you've got a computer, you've got all this kind of stuff. But, hey, we take half your check, but you don't have to pay anything up front, including a monthly fee. Well, and, you know, who's doing that now is Redfin, publicly held, so they have the, the funds to put some things together. They've been in business a long time trying to perfect this. Redfin has one of the, I think they're really number three for the number of unique visitors they have on their website. Really? Um, very, very strong website now, great, you know, great at pulling people off the Internet. Okay. And their concept is if you work for Redfin, they have two classes of agents, but their top class of agents are full employees. They actually have a salary and a guarantee. Wow. They get paid a bonus on homes, but uh -huh. nowhere near the full percentage. And if you do the split, you know, it's something like 90% for the store, 10% to the agent. But you got to understand the it benefits, health insurance, a bunch of those types of things like you mentioned. Um, Redfin hasn't been able to make that stick, certainly not in our market. Now, okay. I understand in other markets they're doing better. But in our market, Redfin is still a relatively small player here. Hmm. Interesting. Well, Byron, I really appreciate your time, man. Uh, I know I've kept you longer than I promised I would, and uh, <laughs> I appreciate your your flexibility there. Just uh, tell everyone before we cut you loose uh, how they can get a hold of you, and uh, and then I'll we'll say goodnight. Absolutely. Best way to reach me is just send me a note to my personal email. That's Byron B Y R O N at Byron Short B Y R O N S H O R T dot com. All right. And is there anything else in closing you wanted to wrap up with? Anything we missed or anything important you think uh, we should know about? I think we covered every last topic <laughs> in real estate, didn't we? <laughs> in one hour, we covered it all, man. Nothing to drink beer over later. We, we have solved the world's problems. There we go. <laughs> Absolutely. Byron, I really appreciate your time. Let's do it again uh, when the market develops a little bit more. And, uh, man, just such a great source of uh, source of information. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me, Jim. Right, Look brother. forward to the next time. All right. Let's talk. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Byron Short, that did not suck. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, that was a little bit of technical, unless you're a realtor or you're actually thinking about selling something in real estate. Uh, fascinating seeing the way the trends are working these days as far as uh, the red fins and the compass and you know going back to the 50-50 split and giving people complete healthcare packages and no fees and everything like this and then paying them a salary I think that's such a great cool concept and then a bonus you know that amounts to about 10% of uh, what you normally would take home is 90% so uh, Byron Short is a realtor in well he's a broker in Phoenix, Arizona, um, three offices. Well, two two offices. What do you say? 160 agents or something like that. 
1.2 million registered realtors in the states. Wow. And there's 33 to 35,000 in his board alone. Uh, that's in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, he had a, some great things to say about the controller, the registrar of his business down there. Uh, many people, it's their favorite pastime is taking shots at the, at the regulating body. I'll put myself in that category as well, especially when they get it wrong, both at the provincial level and uh, the federal level. <coughs> so Byron Short, uh, is, is, he's, we had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago brought on by this iBuyer thing. I think the iBuyer is fascinating. Uh, if you want to sell quick and your brake wall has fallen into the ocean or the lake, uh, maybe the iBuyer is something that you want to try out. Um, uh, and, you know, the idea that you, they'll, these agents will work with iBuyers and, uh, and do it for about a point. So, anyways, uh, Byron Short is a great source of information, and uh, we'll touch him up again soon. In the uh, Niagara market, I do have something coming up soon in, in regards to a listing. St. Catharines, if you're looking for a north end 1,600-square-foot uh, four-bedroom bungalow, this is a very rare piece. It'll be coming up uh, March, middle of March. But if you want to get in soon, especially if you you know, you know don't have an agent, that would be great because it's a friend of mine. I'd like to give her a good deal on the commission. And if I bring the buyer, I can afford to do that much more than if I only get one end of it. So... Um, like, I'm not going to give you the address, but it is north of Scott. Let's call it the Scott Grantham, Scott Niagara area. So North End, Monarch Park subdivision, great property. A 1,600-square-foot natural four-bedroom bungalow. So there's four bedrooms up on the main floor. And the bungalow is a great functional style where you can walk straight out, you know, straight into the house with a couple steps and straight out to the backyard with a couple steps. And not this, you know, bi-level style or... You know, walking out of a walkout of the basement. So, 1,600 square foot, four bedroom, bungalow, bath and a half, garage and a half, backs onto a church, a big park-like setting. It's got a nice yard on it. It's deep, deeply back from the street. Uh, it's probably, well, it is a little dated, but in absolutely phenomenal shape. I mean, there's nothing to do on this thing. She, well, it's uh, one of my best friend's widows, and she's one of my best friends as well. Uh, but uh, going way back, uh, she's got an opportunity, and this is a good time to sell for her. So it's going to be around 500 ish. I'm, I haven't nailed down an exact price, but it's going to be close to 500. Again, 1600 square foot natural four bedroom bungalow. It's a really cool layout. You haven't seen a layout like this, but functional from the standpoint that it backs onto uh, like the living room and the kitchen kind of are in the back of the house, and it backs onto the end of the park in a really nice yard so uh 905-934-1110 905-934-1110 you can call or text that number or you can send email to real estate at team niagara.ca yes we're still selling houses i need to sell some more this will this will be a good little listing though uh and if you're looking to sell your place we'd glad to be we'd be honored to interview for the job and be one of the three realtors that you have in. And I can promise you one thing. I can give you some tips that none of the other realtors will give you when they come in. I know that for sure. I've been doing this 25 years. And we've got a couple uh, unique features, a unique uh, strategies and tactics that actually work. And if they don't work, it's not going to cost you any money. So 
real estate at teamnagra.ca or 905-934-1110 for that new listing that's coming up if you want to jump on board get in line uh, for a really good property at a decent price 500 ish um, and thanks for the people that tune in a lot of realtors jumped on today so that's good I'll say hello and goodbye to all of you and we'll talk soon actually I think you're gonna have Greg Vesna coming up soon we're gonna talk some politics it's 143 on a beautiful Friday afternoon. Peace out.